Well, good morning. Welcome again to In Town Presbyterian Church. It's great to be in worship with you this morning. If you are visiting with us, I wanted to just update you where we are. We're going through just a couple of one-off sermons as we prepare for our fall ministry season, which things really pick up. Groups start meeting again, new groups and new initiatives are launched, and we'll be going through a study of Colossians for 10 weeks in the fall leading up to uh, the season of Advent. This morning, we're going to look at just a a passage out of uh, Romans chapter 12, dealing with love, dealing with the issue of how do we love one another and what does love do in our world. So let me read our passage and then pray for us as we get started. This is Romans 12, 9 through 21. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, how easy it is for us to find enemies. Find enemies in our family. Find enemies in the pew next to us. Find enemies at work. How we see minor offenses as so grave that we see them as evil. Father, let us this morning look in the mirror. Let your word diagnose us. Would you overcome us with your love? Would you overcome the evil intents in our hearts with your gospel? Would you begin to drive out the hatred, the animosity, the evil that we that resides in the deep places of our hearts? Would you replace it with the gospel of love, the gospel of grace? Would you begin to do that even now as we reflect upon this passage this morning? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Ironman Triathlon you aware of this race, this crazy thing they do every year out on the big island of Hawaii? You start off with a 2. I believe 6, 2.4 mile swim. I can hardly run that far, but swim 2.4 miles. After that, you hop on your bike and you bike for 112 miles. And then to top it off, you run a marathon, 26.2 miles. Now most people finish this 
in 11 hours. That's the average. So for 11 hours, you are grueling, running, biking, swimming, basically just trying to stay on your feet. The winner does it in eight and a half hours, generally speaking. In October 2005, Dick Hoyt completed his sixth Ironman competition at the age of 65. Now that's pretty impressive in and of itself, but you have to know who his racing partner was. Because for the 2.4 mile swim, he was pulling an inflatable raft with his, with his son Rick in the back of it who has cerebral palsy and can't run a race himself. For the bike ride, he has Rick on the front of the bike in this little pod. So he's bicycling with twice the weight of every other competitor. And then for the marathon, he's pushing a modified jog stroller with his son in it. They've done that six times. They've run 90-something marathons. Rick was born brain damaged because of an umbilical cord issue. It was wrapped around his neck, and it cut off oxygen flow to the brain, and he developed this condition. And the doctors, when he was born, advised him, this is back in the um, late 60s, they don't have quite the type of technology and home care and so forth that's available now, but they advised him, this is far too much of a burden. This is far too difficult for one family to absorb this. And so they advised uh, the family to institutionalize Rick and just kind of visit him, but he was going to live somewhere else. And they said, no, no, no. He's our son. We're bringing him home. We'll do whatever it takes that he can live with his family. And so they took on this incredible emotional, incredible physical, incredible financial burden to keep Rick at home. They raised money for as long as they could to buy a computer so that Rick could communicate because he couldn't talk. And then they began to race for charity. And they did at first just running with Rick in the stroller. And after the first race they did together, Rick came home and on his computer he said, Dad, when we race, I don't feel handicapped. And they've been racing ever since. In our passage this morning, Paul is calling on the Christian community, calling upon the church to serve each other, to serve the world around us as an act of love, as an act of devotion. As a father... Dick Hoyt is called upon to serve his son in ways far beyond what normal fathers are called upon to do. It's a life that's filled with excruciating tasks, sleepless nights, and not only that, they begin racing and they begin training. But Dick Hoyt is not doing it simply out of duty, simply because he's Rick's father and that he has to do it. You see as you read interviews, as you see videos of them. He does this because he loves his son deeply. He knows that he can alleviate one of the most difficult aspects of his life by racing. He can bring him happiness. He can make him feel not disabled anymore. And so he does it out of love for his son. In a very real way, in a very visible way, Dick's love for his son overcomes the evil that happened when he was born. In our passage this morning, we're going to see two things. We're going to see how much of a burden and yet a joy love is. And then we're going to see love as the overcomer of evil. Love is a burden and a joy. Love is the overcomer of evil. 
So first of all, burden and a joy. When we have a word like love, you tend to kind of read right past it because you think, well, I get what love is. It's like grace or mercy or one of the other words so prominent in Scripture that we kind of, out of habit, just read beyond it. It's a word that the Bible describes more pictorially than, than propositionally. 1 John 4, God is love. If you want to know what love is, look at God himself. John 15, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life. And then here in Romans 12, we see love described as an acting force that overcomes evil. Now let's talk about a few misconceptions that you or I may have. These are three that I have, that I have to overcome. I have to remind myself of my own presuppositions of what love is. Now often we may think that love is defined by temperament or by personality. And so the very gregarious person, the very effusive verbal encourager is generally seen as loving, while more of an introverted person, one that's not good at verbal love, may not be. Uh, in my work, I develop a lot of relationships with other pastors, and I think of two of my friends. One who is very introverted. He doesn't smile a lot. He kind of mumbles, and he walks around. He looks very dour, <laughs> but he's the first person that will drop something to serve. He'll go to a conference. He'll be invited to speak at a conference, and afterwards you'll see him in the back of the, in the, back of the auditorium or whatever the context is, uh, taking out the trash doing whatever it does to help clean up after the event. I've got another uh, friend who is just effusive in his encouragement. I get a text from him, maybe monthly, that just says, hey, praying for you this morning. You're doing a great job. You're wonderful. God loves you. That sort of thing. And he's very gregarious with his love. Now, what is common between those two is not their temperament, not their personality, but it is their willingness, their desire their uh, willingness to drop what they're doing and serve someone else. It is their common concern for other people's good. So it's not primarily, it's not defined by personality or temperament. It's also not primarily an emotional value. A teenager in love with their girlfriend or boyfriend can say, I love you because they feel so strongly about that relationship at the moment. But what tells you whether it's really love is, are they willing to sacrifice? Are they willing to go through the hard slogging that any real relationship takes when they no longer feel that, that vibrancy of emotion? Will they stay beside them? Will they walk with them? Will they commit to be a servant to them? On the other hand, a spouse may not feel affectionate at the moment with their loved one because of an argument, because they've been having this discussion over and over and they can't break through it. And so they may feel, not feel, a great emotional affection towards their spouse, but they can still choose to serve. They can still choose to wake up with the crying baby. They can still choose to change the diaper. Uh, it's not defined primarily by emotion. And it's also, as we alluded to with Dick, it's not simply doing your duty either. Because conversely, when Katie and I are at odds, sometimes I can get busy serving. We can have some disagreement, and I'll go clean up the room, or clean up the den, or go do the dishes. What am I doing? I'm saying, well, you know, look at what I'm doing for you. I mean, you, you look at how I'm serving you. I'm, and what I'm doing is basically putting her in my debt. 
I'm doing my duties in order to hide what is actually a lack of love towards her at that moment. Now that we've kind of got some of those misconceptions out of the way, let's look at how Paul, the Apostle Paul, the writer here, defines love positively. And we're going to look in the next point at a, a list, or, or farther in this point, about the list that he gives us. It goes on and on. But Paul is also building this argument, and he's talked about love many times in the book of Romans. And back in chapter 5, he says, and again, the Bible is describing, even Paul, the theologian, is describing love pictorially in images. And he says, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Love is a conscious decision to step into someone else's life to help them, to carry a burden, to relieve them of things that are heavy on them. It's a conscious decision to step into someone else's need, to take another's burdens on top of you, to consider someone else's needs as more important, as more primary than your own, and to do so as a reflection of Jesus' love for you. It's a burden. Love is a burden because you cannot take someone else's burdens on your shoulders without you being burdened yourself. But it's a burden that brings joy. If you watch the videos of Dick and Rick Hoyt on their race and you see this incredible exertion, you see excruciating pain, physical pain, as he's pushing Rick up the hill once again at the end of the marathon. But you see at the end of it, you see joy. You see a smile break out. You see Rick give an interview, Dick give an interview and say, we love this. It's excruciating physically. It's a burden. And yet, at the same time, it's a great joy. Now, we can fathom, to some degree, Dick Hoyt's commitment to his son. But what is radical, what is incredibly difficult, is that what the Apostle Paul is calling each of us to do is to do this for people that are not our children, that are not even in our family, that may even be opposed to us, that we're to carry burdens for those who might be our enemies. Now, depending on how this passage is divided, there's between 19 and 30 imperatives that Paul attaches to the action of love. That this is what you're to do to overcome good with evil. This is what love looks like. There may be up to 30 descriptions and imperatives. So we can't go through each and every one of them. But Paul is clearly thinking here in two categories. First of all, it's love within the community, within the church, within the circle of believers. And then it's also, secondarily or next, is love to enemies. So in verses 9 to 13, you see Paul describing the nature of love, how it is to operate and function within the church. And then in the, the last part of 14 to 21, you get love to enemies, love to those who oppose you, who may be in your family, who may be in the church. Love to enemies. Now let's look first at this first set of those. And again, we can't go through each of them and itemize, but a couple of things that we need to point out. First of all, it says love must be sincere. Literally, love without hypocrisy. 
Now that word we get from the Greek that was also attributed to stage actors, to Greek actors that wore masks during uh, the play. A hypocrite is someone who is acting, who is covering themselves, who is hiding behind some type of posture or some type of, of uh, illusion. Literally, love without hypocrisy. We are not to give love. We're not to serve one another as uh, in order to attempt to hide what is the truer orientation of our heart. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil, but cling to what is good. That love is not just blind sentimentality, because it says that love hates what is evil. It hates the things that harm your brothers and sisters. It hates the injustice in the world enough to act against it, to oppose what is unjust and unrighteous and harmful. Be devoted to one another in love. And this word for devoted has a familial commitment. It's a parent and child relationship that in some way that the church, the community is a family that has familial connections to one another. And that's why over and over you hear the epistles using brothers and sisters, that you are together, that you are part of a family. So be devoted to that family. That conflict within the family doesn't sever the relationships. Any more that conflict in your personal family uh, severs that relationship. You never cease to be a, a son or a daughter or a, a mother or a father. Honor one another above yourselves. That love values others' needs. That it esteems the other person as more important. Share with God's people who are in need. That we are to see our resources through the lens of the needs next to us. That as we itemize the resources that we have, whether they're physical and tangible, money, or whether it's more of a concept, time, or our emotional, spiritual resources, that we are to see those resources through the lens of other people's needs. And then practice hospitality. That this is not a responsive action. That love doesn't sit and wait for needs to be presented to you, but it executes. It seeks out opportunities to serve. Now that's the first part. And we can kind of, if you're a Christian and you're here in the church and you love those next to you, you can kind of say, okay, that makes sense. But then it gets difficult, even more difficult. We're to love our enemies, not simply those who are friends, not simply those who we are presently having good relations with but our enemies as well. If someone offends you, if someone opposes you, if you hear things third party that they're saying about you, you don't want to give an inch. You don't want to serve them. It makes your skin crawl to hear them affirmed from someone else. You say, no, 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 but you want to correct any type of affirmation when you hear them praised. And even if we don't actively tear them down, we can hate them in our minds. We can destroy them internally. How do we change? How do we begin to take those two lists and begin to enact it? Presuming you want to change, how do we begin to do that? If we want to change, friends, we've got to see that what the Apostle Paul is laying down here is not simply a new ethic. He's not simply giving a list so that you can climb into, in fact, not at all, climb into his favor. 
He's not simply laying down a new ethic, but he's describing the nature of God's love towards you. God shows love to you even when you oppose him. God offers forgiveness to you even in the face of repeated offense. That's why I brought up the Romans 5, that even while you were opposed to him, even while you were an enemy, that God gave you forgiveness. God gave you his love. He offered you everything. And as you begin to reflect upon that, as that begins to reside deeper within your heart and in your soul, as you see that as the relationship between you and God, not a one that you work off a debt to him, not one that you say, okay, I've got this list of things to do in a loving way, and as I serve that, then God will be happy with me. Not at all. That God grants you forgiveness before you did anything to serve him. The movie uh, Forrest Gump came out in 1994, and I remember when it came out that summer, I went and watched it, I don't know, three or four times. It was fascinating to me how Forrest unwittingly inserts himself into all of the major cultural developments and shifts going through the 60s to the 80s. He's there in Vietnam. He's there with the happy face. He's there in all of these cultural icons and moments. But in the background, the real story, after you kind of get that, after you watch it again and again, you begin to see that the real story is not how he kind of winds up in these crazy places, but it's his love affair with Jenny. It's his constant courtship, his pursuit of Jenny, in spite of her uh, serial unfaithfulness to him, in spite of the fact that she doesn't return his love to her. Forrest loves, Forrest's love prevails. It overcomes so much of the evil that is going on in Jenny's life. So it's, at some point later in the movie, they finally come together in marriage with Forrest caring for her as she dies. She doesn't have anything to offer him. He's not doing it. He's not loving her because of this long life they're going to have together and how much joy she's going to bring him because she's dying of AIDS. He marries her because he loves her, because it's a joy for him to give up his life, to give up his resources to serve Jenny. Now, at risk of sounding irreverent and comparing God to Forrest Gump, uh, God in our relationship is the suitor. God is the one that is constantly pursuing you, that is willing to give up things for you, that is willing to give up his son so that you may be happy, so that you may receive joy, so that you may enter into a relationship of liberty, of freedom, of peace. He is asking you in these lists to simply do what he's already done for you, that he has forgiven you as the offender, that he loves you in spite of the evil that still rests in your heart. Offer love to others as a reflection of what the type of love that he's given to you and continues to give. So if you're here today and you're not yet ready to consider yourself a Christian, the call of this passage is not simply, here's a new list, go do it. But it is, allow me to love you in this way. What would it be like if that list is how I operate towards you, how I relate to you? Allow me to embrace you, to love you in that way. That God is willing to suffer 
on your behalf, that He's willing to be reconciled to you through the affliction of His very own Son. Sin is forgiven, not because you are worthy, but because God is the God of love. And that everything He asks of you and of I, He's willing to do for you. Love is a burden, and love is a great joy. Love is also the overcomer of evil in this passage. Now he quotes a number of Old Testament sources here. First of all, in verse 19, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. He's quoting from Deuteronomy here and saying, Friends, you don't have to seek revenge because God is the heavenly judge. God is the one who promises to right every wrong. God is the one who promises to bring every oppressor before him to give an account. The Christian faith, as we said earlier, doesn't say turn a blind eye to injustice, but it gives a real foundation to forego retaliation and the seeking of revenge. Because God has promised a day when justice will rain down, when all suffering will end, when all tears will be wiped away, when everything that is sick and sad about this world will become undone, that he will undo it. So there is a, a reason to forego retaliation. There's a reason to extend forgiveness over and over and over. And he says, secondly... On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. It's a very strange picture, and it doesn't really make a lot of sense in our context and in our language. Uh, he's quoting from Proverbs 25, and some have tried to explain it this way, that a Christian's meek and loving actions is indeed the punishment or the offender, that your response makes them feel guilty and shameful for their actions. Now that may be true in that when you're kind to someone in the face of oppression, they may feel guilty, and that's probably something that would come out of that. But that can never be the motivation for us to be kind, for us to forgive, for us to love an offender, because that itself is retributive. That itself is a, a lighter form, a softer form of revenge. Beneficence can never be motivated by someone else's suffering. Burning coals and fires throughout the Old Testament are a symbol of purification. They're a symbol of making something clean. They're a symbol of repentance. And in the ancient world, they had this very strange practice that's hard to even understand. But what they would do when there was an offense, when there was a conflict, and one party uh, was the, the person and responsible would would uh, confess that I am responsible and I now ask your forgiveness. And as a sign of penitence, they would carry around a bucket of hot coals on their head. Very strange picture. But what Paul is arguing here, and what he's encouraging you and I to do, is that kindness in the face of aggression can lead to that person's repentance. It's not to make them feel shameful or guilty. It's not to shame them into an apology. It's that they would repent. It's that they would claim the promises of God. That if you are kind to someone, if you follow Jesus' ethic of love to another person, that that can be the means by which God begins to work in that other person's life. That's 
what he's getting after with this image of the bucket of coals. Now thirdly, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. If the evil actions towards you are a catalyst to you seeking retribution, to seeking revenge, to hateful thoughts, then the the evil of the original act is compounded. It's intensified. You grow the evil of that original uh, act by your own response to it. Instead, overcome this evil intent by doing good to the offender, by responding with a kind word, by foregoing retaliation and then seeking their good. Don't compound the evil, but squash it. Do away with it by a kind response. The response of love, the willingness to let God be judge and jury, disarms and swallows up the evil intent of the offender. Do not overcome, be, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You have a choice to make as someone offends you. Will you compound the evil and let it flower, or will you stop it by loving the offender? Love asks you, in fact, to die for the offender, to overcome their evil with good. Now, Paul is writing here in the midst of redemptive history that goes from Genesis to Revelation. He's looking back and saying the reason, the foundation for how you love your offender, that you love the person next to you, the very foundation of that is the gospel. It is Christ. It is his work for you. And you see throughout the Bible that Jesus is the middle of the scriptures. And then in the Old Testament, you see these prophecies, you see these types, you see these analogies that are pointing to Jesus, that are pointing to his cross. And at Easter, we often read this passage in Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray, and each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. What the Bible is saying is here is the perfect image of evil being swallowed up by love, by the victory of love. As Jesus is punished for the sins of the world, for your sins, as you see his actions on, were caused by you, by your sin, by your offenses, that your sin was laid on top of him. You can begin to enact that for others as that begins to take up resonance in your heart. Only when this realization becomes more and more at the center of your life, at the center of your story, at the center of who you are as a person, can you begin to follow this list. Otherwise, it's impossible. Otherwise, you'll just become so burdened by the list and say, I give up. I can't do any of it. But insofar as you reflect upon the fact of what God has done in your behalf, that your sin, your offenses was laid upon Jesus, you begin to want to serve. You begin to want. You begin to see 
not only the burden of love, but also the joy. And to all of us, this passage is an invitation to let God love you in this way, to throw off your offenses, to throw off your guilt, to throw off your shame and your evil and let someone else take it for you. That's the gospel, and that's at the center of not only this passage, but of the whole book of Romans and of the whole Bible itself. Let's pray as we end. Father, we thank you for the fact that even in these places where we are called to insurmountable obligation, that you grant us grace, that you grant us love, that you grant us forgiveness. And Father, I pray that as we remember that, as we live, that we would live out of gratitude, that even when we fail, that you continue to do good to us, that you continue to forgive our offenses and carry our burdens, not because, not through gritted teeth, but with great joy. Father, I thank you for the gospel. I thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.